0: All right, part 11 is, uh, probably should erase this, let me erase this because I have probably too many parts to write on here, I'm going to try to just go through about six this time. Um, So part 11 is going to be the wandering in the wilderness, like Israel's wandering, that takes us like from Exodus down to like really the book of Deuteronomy, so 11 would be the wanderings. All right. Let's look at some things about that. There's so many lessons here for us. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let's go over there. Deuteronomy chapter 1. um, Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 1. 1, These be the words which. Moses spake unto all Israel on this side, Jordan in the wilderness in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. There are 11 days journey from Oreb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea, and it came to pass in the 40th year. So the first big lesson we get here is that Israel wasted 40 years for what was an 11-day journey. They could have done this in 11 days, It took them 40 years. That's amazing and tragic. (laughs) Um, You say, why? Well, I'm not going to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 13, the number of rebellion, they saw the giants instead of their God. And you'll never make it into the promised land of blessing and victory without faith. (laughs) Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So they send out the spies, you probably know the story, and they see the sons of Anak, they say we're going to be as grasshoppers, there were giants in the land, and they see the giants instead of their god. When you look at the giants instead of their god, you see yourself as a grasshopper. When you look at your god, everybody else seems like a grasshopper. Uh, And you get saved by faith, and you must walk by faith in the wilderness, The Bible says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. It's a walk of faith. Israel lost their faith. Um, The Bible calls them a generation that has no faith, children in whom is no faith. And while, now think about this, while the people of God were in Egypt for those 430 years, 400 of them they were slaves, the first 30 they were not, but they were down there for 430 years, what is the devil doing? He's restocking Canaan with giants. How do those giants end up in Canaan again? The devil is at work while Israel is out of the land down in Egypt. He's doing something, and there's giants again in that land. The devil wants that land, and he wants to keep Israel out of that land. That's why Satan hates Israel. He wants that land. You ever think about why that land? Why not like the Alps? (laughs) Why not the Swiss Alps? You know, or the, the beautiful scenes of maybe like, you know, the Midwest or, uh, you know, a beautiful, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, Florence. I loved going to Florence. What a beautiful city I thought why, why this chunk of dirt in the middle of the desert? Well, it seems like in the original creation, Lucifer might have had his throne there. Because God tells Lucifer in Ezekiel chapter 28, thou hast been in Eden the garden of God. like So he seems to have had some connection there, and we know Lucifer had a throne, so perhaps he had a throne there or something connected to there. It's a little foggy, I know, but it seems like he's got some kind of affinity for that place, that he had something there that he lost, that land of that kingdom might have been his, and he wants it back. He doesn't want these little dust balls inhabiting what he thinks is his. And because Israel did not have any courage... The Lord wiped out that generation and started again. They had no courage. You see, God gives you the scripture, and he says to have faith. It takes courage to have faith in what God said, and they had no courage. So that's a whole section. They're wandering in the wilderness. Uh, Section 12, right? Section 12. Section 12 is going to be crossing Jordan. That's going to take us into Joshua 1. So if you want to go over to Joshua 1, all right, just like that, we did the whole book of Deuteronomy. Whoop, that's it. That was easy. Saved you some reading. All right, Joshua 1. So here's Joshua now and Israel crossing over Jordan. And Israel crossing Jordan is a fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12. Now Genesis 12 gets fulfilled. Now they get the land. Look at Joshua 1. Look what he Remember what kept them out of the promised land? A lack of courage. What does God tell Joshua over and over again in the first chapter? Look at Joshua 1, 6. Be strong and have a good courage. Verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Verse 9. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and have a good courage. Courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Verse number 18 Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death, only be strong and of a good courage. The Lord wants this second generation to have the courage their fathers lacked. Courage. Because the promised land is not heaven. I know we sing like, you know, Beulah Land and, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, we could type, it's a typology, yes. But doctrinally, the promised land is not heaven. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of victory. It's a place of overcoming because the promised land had battles to be fought. When you and I go to heaven, there's no more battles to fight. But to get to the place of victory in our lives, there are battles to fight. There's the battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. There's the battle of Ai in Joshua 7 to 8. That's where we have the account of Achan hiding his sin. And then in Joshua 10, if you want to turn there, we have the battle of Gibeon, should say almost the battle for Gibeon. All these kings come up against Israel, and they say, well, Well, these uh, Gibeonites that that had made a, a league with Israel said, we'll attack these Gibeonites, and that'll draw Israel into a war, and we'll be able to take them out. And that battle of Gibeon is where the sun stood still for a whole day. And that battle is worth noting because in that battle, Joshua pictures Jesus Christ at his second coming. In that battle of Gibeon, Joshua pictures Jesus Christ at his second coming. Look at Joshua 10, verse 14. And it's an amazing battle. I mean, God throws hailstones from heaven. You read about that in the, in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation, when God is sending hailstones down. So this battle in Joshua 10 is a great picture of Armageddon and Jesus Christ coming back at his second coming. Watch this phrase in Joshua ten fourteen. It says, And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." That's an amazing statement. Remember that statement. There was no day like it, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, make a cross-reference to Zechariah. Let's go there. Zechariah 14. Remember this battle is a great picture of Jesus Christ at the second coming. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. Let's start at verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, just like all those nations and those kings came up against Israel in Joshua 10. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then... Israel's getting rampaged. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, watch it, as when he fought in the day of battle. There's a reference to Joshua 10 and the battle of Joshua 10. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. So there's this great picture of Jesus Christ at the second coming in Joshua 10. And by the end of the book of Joshua, Israel has almost 85% of the land in their possession. They've almost claimed all the land by the end of the book of Joshua. But not all of them. There's a lesson in that. Because the Lord wanted to leave some nations to prove Israel. And the Lord doesn't take away all your problems. He leaves some problems behind to prove you. When you got saved, all your problems didn't magically go away. The debt was still there, the family was still there, the strife was still there, and God said, now, let's see how you respond. So there were still some nations there for them to overcome. He left them there to prove them. And of course, they failed the test, which brings us to the, uh, well. that worked out good, the 13th section, which is the time of the judges. And that's just a real, that's an awful time in your Bible for the people of God. Right, The book of Judges, the time of the Judges. Judges is a book of compromise and confusion. Compromise and confusion. The book of Judges demonstrates the law of human collapse. That everything we do will eventually fall apart without God and turning to God. The book of Judges runs about 220 years before the king comes in 1 Samuel. So the book of Judges pictures for us the church age, when there's no king in Israel. And if you jump to uh, Ruth chapter 1, the book of Ruth is happening during the time of the Judges. Even though it comes after the book of Judges, it's running concurrently with the book of Judges, just in a different place. And in Ruth 1.1, it says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Okay? So that's what we have. The book of Judges pictures the church age. That's the time when Ruth comes on the scene, picture of the church. And every time Israel gets away from God, The Lord lets them be oppressed by an enemy. That's the story of Judges. Every time they get away from God, it's, you know, this ite, the Philistines, the Midianites, the, you know, the Ammonites. It says every time they get away from God, God sends an enemy to get them humble. That's what's happening now, by the way, people. That's what's happening in the Middle East right now. They're far from God. We're living in the time of the Judges, and God is sending enemies to shake them and scare them and try to cause them to repent. And one day they will turn and call upon their Messiah. Even so, Um, God would raise up a judge to deliver them. And they'd be like, hooray, kind of like us. And then soon enough, they would fall into apostasy again. And the book of Judges is just this cycle of just just collapse, confusion, it's misery. But there are a few key judges whose exploits illustrate some good biblical principles for us, if you want to know. I'm going to give you four of them. First one is Deborah. In Judges 4 and 5, Deborah, she's the only female judge mentioned here, only female judge. You say, what does that teach us? God will use a good woman if there's no good man. (laughs) And uh, that's very, very true. People get on, you know, people get on, if you've ever read any books by um, Gail Ripplinger, Uh, she wrote some amazing books, New Age Versions, In All of Thy Word, a uh, sweet lady wrote, wrote, wrote some of the greatest books about the King James issue. I mean, my wife has spoken to her on the phone, unassuming, humble, you know, just a, a you know a real saint of God. And some of the really separated brethren, you know, have a problem with the fact that, well, she's a woman writing this book. Well, you know what I would tell them? Why didn't you write it, stupid? Like, just then you write it. When, God, when there isn't a good enough man to do the job, God will you know, use a woman to use the job. God's is not much of a misogynist as most of us are. Uh, so that's a great lesson there, right? God will use a good woman. How many, how many families, how many Susanna Wesleys are there who raised the John and Charles Wesley uh, when there wasn't maybe a good enough man to do it? You know, I mean, God will use a woman if there's no guy there. You know, he doesn't need a guy. He'll, he'll use a good woman. He used a good woman named Deborah to help the nation. Uh, The next one is Gideon. Um, That's in Judges 6 to 8. You say, what's the lesson of Gideon? The Lord is not impressed by our numbers. He's not impressed by our numbers. 32,000 down to 300. That's amazing. He rocked them with 300. Nobody had to even lift a sword. Don't get too caught up with numbers. You know, I just don't get worried about how many people there are there. It's just God doesn't need, just God, God just needs a few good men Amen. or women. <laughs> um, how about Judges, how about Jephthah? J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. Jephthah in Judges eleven twelve. 12. What does that teach us? The awful effect of pride. Jephthah is an idiot. He makes a vow that whoever comes in his door, I'm going to offer them to the Lord. And when his daughter comes in, he he ruins his daughter's life. It's a debate whether did he actually sacrifice his daughter or not. Whatever side of that debate you're on, he ruined her life. (laughs) He either either sacrificed her in truth or he put her away so she could never marry and have a life for herself. But Jephthah says, I've opened my mouth before the Lord and I can't go back. Yes, you can. Oops, sorry, shouldn't have said that. Sorry, Lord. But he was too proud to go back on what he had said. That was not a vow God wanted him to vow. Jephthah is a great example of a bad dad who's just so proud that, you know, what I say goes. Yes, what you say goes. But when you say something dumb, walk it back and apologize to your family and go forward. Don't be so proud, Jephthah. And the last one is Samson in Judges 13 to 16. <clears throat> And Samson's like a lot of us. Samson pictures the Laodicean church. He could have been great for God, but he commits spiritual suicide. He just ruins everything. Could have been great for God, but commits spiritual suicide. And if you go to the last verse of Judges twenty-one twenty-five, it's probably right above Ruth 1-1, that verse sums up the failure of the Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the problem. There's no king. There's no authority. That's where we're living now. Israel has no king. That's doctrinal. And spiritually, most of the church has forsaken the king. They have no king. We have a king. Our King James Bible is our king. They have no king. they just doing what... I I like it the way it says it here. It's a good rendering over there. That's not what God wanted. God wanted to be an authority. And it's during this time of the judges that a Gentile woman named Ruth, forms a relationship with Boaz. And it's a picture of our romance with the Redeemer while Israel is waiting for her king. Isn't that an amazing picture? Who wrote that Bible like that? Who did that? <laughs> Who set that up like that? I think it was God. Right, it is like God wrote the Bible. Right? Section 14 will take us from 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles. This is going to be now the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Establishment of the kingdom of heaven. This is the height of Israel's kingdom on earth, that political, physical, visible entity. This is arguably the greatest time in Israel's history. The nation is being established. If you look on the back of your sheet, I just have this very uh, simple kind of diagram here of the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament and uh, just kind of gives you the up and the down of how it moved and how it flowed. And we're heading here now into the greatest time in Israel's history. We got Samuel. He's the last judge of the nation. Then we got Saul. Just think about the pictures here. We got the last judge of Samuel, right? Then we got Saul. That's not God's first choice, right? He's a type of antichrist, Saul, Saul's a type of antichrist. He was the people's choice. Laodicea, the rights of the people. That was Saul. Then we get David, one of the greatest kings of Israel who wipes out their enemies. And after David, Solomon, David's son through Bathsheba, which leads Israel into a land, into rest for 40 years in their land. What a picture. Judges, church age. Saul, Antichrist, David, Armageddon, second coming, warrior, Solomon, millennium. That's the flow of time. That's the picture. Now go to 1 Kings 11. Oh, this is a sad passage. 1 Kings 11. 11 is that number of destruction here. 11, verse 1. Ah, that's a big butt in the first verse there. 1 Kings 11, 1, that's a big butt. That butt really stinks the place up. But King Solomon loved many strange women. That's not like, you know, your weird cousin, right? Strange meaning foreign women, like just not Israelites. They weren't supposed to intermarry. It is, but King Solomon loved many strange or foreign women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. The wisest man who supposedly ever lived. Turns out being the biggest idiot. And he had 700 wives, and he's just like us. Don't get too judgmental of Solomon. You know better and I know better. and We do stupid things all the time, just like Solomon. And he had 700 wives, that's a lot of birthdays, princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, just like God said. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect or complete with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. David was foolish, and David sinned, but David never stopped loving the Lord, even though he made mistakes. Solomon really just turned away from God. Solomon's an interesting character, because Solomon's a type of Christ and antichrist. You say, is Solomon in heaven? I think so, but he's a sure interesting bird, that old Solomon, because he's as good as he is, he's as wicked as he is. Look what he does here. Five. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abominations of the Ammonites. Those guys were sacrificing their kids to Moloch, those, those, those nations. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David, his father. So... God will then take the kingdom from Solomon and his son Rehoboam takes over. It's all on your chart there, right? So after after Solomon, you got Rehoboam. And uh, where am I? I lost my place there. Rehoboam's a fool. (laughs) He's a fool. Doesn't want to listen to the counsel of the old men. Ends up splitting the kingdom into north and south, right? And uh, Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's mighty men of valor, He takes the ten northern tribes. Jeroboam takes the ten northern tribes. That becomes Israel or Ephraim. So when we say Israel proper now, we're referring to the northern tribes, sometimes called Ephraim. And Rehoboam, the fool, takes the two southern tribes, and there is just civil war back and forth. And if you're any kind of military strategist, you know, you divide and conquer your enemies. And so the devil makes his move to divide and conquer the people of God. He split them up, and now they're easy pickings. The north has 19 kings, they're all bad. There isn't a single good king in the northern, in, in Israel. The south has 19 kings and one queen, they're mostly bad. There's a few good ones Asa, Jehoshaphat. Hezekiah, uh, Josiah are some of the good ones. Uh, but they're mostly bad. Athalia, the queen, is, is hell on wheels. Um, but both the north and the south, the end is the same, judgment and captivity. They both end the same way, in judgment from God and captivity from God. And The devil gets in there. He gets in there through his Baal worship. You get up, the Baal worship gets into the nation and just tears the nation apart. And then finally, God has enough. He just has enough. And in 2 Kings 17, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, carries away Israel in 721 BC. Those are the northern tribes. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, Assyria, he carries away the 10 northern tribes in approximately 721 BC. And then Nebuchadnezzar, sound it out, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carries away Judah in 606 B.C., the southern kingdom. Just illustrates that old message, payday someday. Payday someday. I'm sure Israel thought they were good. We're the people of God. We're good. God loves us. We're good. And then lets them get carried away. What does the Bible say? Our our transgressions, our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And you can thumb your nose at God, keep thumbing it, It doesn't mean you're sinless. It doesn't make, you don't make mistakes. Right, brother, right, sis. It doesn't mean you don't keep falling flat on your face, but you try to come back. You keep trying to do the best you can, but when you are thumbing your nose at God, you're saying, you know, I don't need God. I'm good. I'm all right. I'm going to do my own thing. God loves me. I'm the people of God. That's an illustration that payday is going to come someday, and iniquities like the wind will carry you away if you're not careful. Don't ever underestimate what a blood-washed child of God can become when he or she steps away from God. Amen. you sound like the last person that said, oh, that would never happen to me. Yeah. That, that's what the last guy said, Amen. whose life just turned into hell on wheels. Oh, you'll never go to hell, but your time on earth might be like hell on earth. Uh, it's worse than being lost. Um, and the books in this section break down as follows. Right? If you want to write down these simple reminders. First Samuel is Saul to David. First Samuel is Saul to David. Bless you. Second Samuel is David. His trials and his problems. Right? That's when he gets into trouble with Bathsheba and his family going crazy. right? So first Samuel, Saul to David. Second Samuel, David. First kings. Solomon to the split kingdom. Solomon to the split kingdom. Second Kings, the ten northern tribes after the split. So Second Kings focuses on, I know it talks about the south, but it mainly focuses on the northern tribes after the split, after the schism, after the the break, the civil split there from north and south. First Chronicles... Is a biography of David as a type of Christ. Really shows the spiritual side of David and all those connections to him being like Christ. It forgets or it leaves out his sin with Bathsheba, covers that up. 2 Chronicles is an emphasis on the southern tribes after the split. 2 Kings, the northern tribes after the split. 2 Chronicles, the southern tribes after the split. Section 15. Moving right along. Stay with me now. We're almost there. Section 15 is the demise of the kingdom of heaven. The demise of the kingdom. The demise of the kingdom. From the end of Solomon's reign, this is going to be the prophets now. Now when Israel's going south, I don't mean like to, to Judah. I just mean going in a bad way. When Israel starts turning from God, He starts sending his prophets, his preachers, his prophets. And from the end of Solomon's reign on, Israel is abandoning God and turning to other nations. Now, outwardly, everything looks good. Outwardly, they still profess to believe in God and even worship at the temple. Sounds a lot like us. Outwardly, we're doing pretty good. We're still going to church. We're still holding our King James Bible. We're still singing the old hymns. But inwardly, their hearts were far. What about you and me? They dumped his word, and they're pretending they love the Lord while they're burning their children in human sacrifices to Moloch. Like, that's what's happening. They're on the side burning their children to Moloch while at the same time saying, no, I believe God. I believe in God. Crazy town. So before sending Sennacherib to the north, and before he sends Nebuchadnezzar to the south, the Lord sends his people prophets. God sends his warning through prophets, through his preachers, prophets. He always does that. And some of those prophets, before the collapse of Israel and Judah, are guys like, you recognize these names, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I think they're on your, they're not on this list. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah. These are some of the prophets that God is sending to the north and south before he lets them go into captivity or takes them into captivity. He's warning them. And we say those words major and minor prophet. That doesn't mean one is more important than the other. just means the major prophets wrote a lot and the minor prophets wrote a little bit less. They appear after Second Chronicles, but they're written during that time. I know the prophets are later in your Bible, but those prophets are coming during that time of Second Chronicles. During that time when the kingdom is going into apostasy, that's when these guys are preaching and warning. Go to Jeremiah twenty-five. Let me show you a couple of verses here about that. So, what did God's people do? Well, a lot, of what we do—they didn't listen. You know what happens when you don't listen? You get in trouble. Jeremiah 25, verse 3. The Bible says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three-and-twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but... You have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. That's God's people just turning their ears away. It's one thing. To, look, we look. We all make mistakes. We all stumble and fall. We still got this flesh. We all, right? Amen. Am I the only one? We still make mistakes. God's not expecting you to be sinless. Try, but do your best. But he knows you're going to struggle with it. But you you try to come back to him. You you know which way you're supposed to be going. You keep repenting. You keep struggling with that problem. You keep trying to overcome. They're not trying to overcome. They're like, forget this. Let's go over to the Baal worship and have ourselves an orgy. Like, that's what's going on over here. It's wicked. And they don't even want to listen. They don't care. They don't care what the Bible says. They don't care what the preacher says. They don't care what anything God says. They just, they're not even inclining their ear. They're not even turning their ear. They're stiffening their neck. And when you stiffen your neck, the Bible says, being offered and reproved when you harden your neck, you'll suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy? The Bible talks about them coming to a place where there is no remedy. Right? All right. Uh, go to Amos chapter 5, Amos chapter 5, yes, open that door, I think we're all suffocating, yes, Amos chapter 5, I'm watching you melt in front of me, I'm watching as the, the eyes get heavy, as I'm up here feeling the same way, Amos 5 verse 20, I could, I could flick the fans on if you want, you want to put them on, those like, see those like switches over there, like those on the right side, you could put those on and liven everybody up here. Uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 10. Like those little toggle switches? Yeah. That should do it. There you go. Let there be wind. It's the Holy Spirit. I hear a sound of a rush. If I see a cloven tongue of fire on some of your heads, no, I'm out of here. All right. um, Amos 5.10 says, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. They hated God preachers then like they hate them today. They just hate them. Part 16. Part 16. The destruction of the kingdom. We've had the prophets warning them, and then we have the destruction of the kingdom. The Bible says, God is not mocked. whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Lord's not a fool. And when Israel made no desire to repent and Israel didn't want to repent, God said, okay. And this time we're looking at now in the prophets will mark the end of the kingdom of heaven and the end of Israel as a world power. That's what we're looking at now. You could find the information about the end of the kingdom of heaven in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is the tragic story of Israel's history and Israel's destruction. In Psalm 78, the second longest psalm in your Bible. Psalm 78. And I said it before, I'll say it again because I know it's one of the questions on your notes. The north goes into captivity in 721 B.C. Under Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Hoshea is the last king of the north. That's in 2 Kings 17. The south... Goes into captivity in 606 BC. That's under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king of the south. That's in Second Chronicles 36. We got that. We okay now? Now you're too cold. I can't regulate. <laughs> All right. We're almost done. I, I mean that. Um, and for the next 2,600 years. Israel's cast off from being a nation. You still got some Bible in there, though. You got e- Ezekiel is a prophet in the captivity. Daniel is a prophet in the captivity. Obadiah is a prophet during that time. So you've got still God is speaking to his remnant, but it's not the same. They're not in their land like they were before. Now you have to point this out so you understand your Bible correctly. With this happening, with God putting his, his, his nation away, a lot of religious groups think that God is done with Israel. They call it replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel. Charles Spurgeon thought that, as good of a preacher as he was. A lot of your Calvinist and Reformed brethren think that. It's so wrong. It makes the Bible fall apart because God is not done with Israel. (laughs) He set them aside, but you see him getting ready to come back for them all the time right now. The Bible is replete with promises about a physical, literal restoration to this nation coming soon. So, the Lord will restore Israel at a second coming, but religious folks didn't believe He was coming then, and they don't believe He's coming now. So, don't get caught up in that replace. We can appropriate, we could see all kinds of spiritual blessings that we could take from Israel. You don't want to read Ezekiel 37 about the uh, dry bones and preach that as a salvation message? That's nice, but that's not sound doctrine, right? That's about uh, restoration that's happening now and will continue to happen in the future. So if you take Israel's restoration out of your Bible, you have a very hard time interpreting the minor prophets and a lot of your Old Testament because a lot of it's yet future to happen. And the last section, 17. The 400 silent years. Which are the opposite of these fans that are anything but silent, all right? So this is the period between Malachi and the first coming of Christ. God is speaking to no one. All right? I know they sold that book in the bookstore. You know, I know you like to read Maccabees on your spare time, or the book of Tobit, or, you know, Esdras, or whatever these other stuff is, or these spurious gospels. God is speaking to no one from Malachi to John the Baptist. God is speaking to no one. The only truth you're getting during this time from God is what you're getting from the Old Testament already written. Is Maccabees interesting? Yes. Is it historical? Yes. Is it Scripture? No way. We've talked about it. Talks about prayers for the dead. Talks about false ways of salvation. That's not doctrine. It's historical writings, yes. That's why the King James translators put the Apocrypha in between the Testaments, but they knew it was not Scripture. What is the devil during this time? He's working through the times of the Gentiles. That's what he's doing. It's the times of the Gentiles. And in Daniel 2, you read about those kingdoms. You read about those, I can't, I don't fit them there. But you got Babylon, followed by Media Persia, <clears throat> followed by Greece, followed by Rome. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome. That image that Daniel sees in chapter 2 is the whole times of the Gentiles. And notice the kingdom that's in power at the first coming of Christ, Rome, is the kingdom that will be in power, and Jesus Christ comes again, Rome, right? Don't trust that quiet harlot, right? She's called the whore for a reason. She's quiet until she makes her move, right? The devil is working to take over the world. He's working to turn the world against God to reject Jesus Christ when he comes the first time. And the devil is putting the Jews in bondage under Rome so they never get the land. He's subjugating them to Rome. That's what the devil's doing working through the Gentile kingdoms, taking over the world, trying to. Turn the world against God. All types of philosophies are showing up during this time. All types of isms are showing up during this time. All types of religious traditions are springing up during this time. That is just, you know, think about when Jesus shows up, there's this whole form of synagogue worship. There's all this type of uh, of rabbinical teachings that are just these traditions that have been built into there. So nobody listens to Jesus Christ. Where did that come from? It's the devil trying to exalt man in that space and putting the Jews under bondage. What is God doing during this time? Go to 2 Chronicles 36. Here's our last verse. 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. Let's go down to verse 22. What's the Lord doing during this silent time? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God. Be with him and let him go up. So Cyrus, the king of Persia, lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem after their captivity. And this is where we have the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Obadiah. He had to let those Jews go back to the land because the Jews had to be in the land when Jesus Christ came to offer them the kingdom. They had to be there at his first coming. So he's preparing them for that that first coming. A remnant is there after 70 years of captivity in preparation of his first coming, and a remnant will be saved at the end of the tribulation in preparation for his second coming. There's always been a remnant. There was a remnant then. There'll be a remnant in the next few years. Israel was supposed to bring light, the light of God's word to the world in the Old Testament, but their sin brought God's silence. A very tragic end. The destruction of the nation leading to the silence from God until a voice cries out from the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And until that voice cries in the wilderness, God is not speaking He's let the people go back. They're building. They're they're having babies. They're having families. So there's a remnant there when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, and that's when God starts speaking again. So that takes us up until the New Testament, and God willing, next week, or next month I should say, we'll dive into the New Testament and try to finish the Bible up next month, I think, and then that'll hopefully lay a groundwork. Then we'll get into some of the divisions, the dispensations, and some of that stuff. So just trying to give you a piece by piece working of the Bible. Hopefully that's a blessing to you and uh, we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you.